A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 281, Winners and Losers. Oddly, this is a rather significant episode, since it now means I have 301 active episodes on iTunes, after having carefully moved my guest episodes to the separate Guests of the History of England podcast. This means that if you go to iTunes, and if you use iTunes, you will only see the most recent 300 episodes, and to see all of them, you will need to subscribe. Sorry about that, I do not make the rules. Also, I need to thank two people, Susan and Jeremias. You both know why. Now then, last time we heard about population change in England with reference to the Dulwich Sewage Works and something of the structure of English society. And I left you all with a question hanging uncomfortably in the air. How did population growth and price inflation affect different groups in society? Was that uncomfortable for you? I might have given the game away anyway when I mentioned that land was the big divider. No land? Good. Crucifixion. Line on the left, one cross each. With land? Freedom and wealth. Let me tell you why land ownership became so spectacularly important in the 16th century, even more so than normal. In the 15th century, you might remember that holding land had not been really that great because there were not many people knocking about on account of the largest pandemic in world history a hundred years ago, so it was difficult to find enough people to work arable land or become tenants. So generally speaking, there was a flight from arable to pasture, since it was much less labour-intensive, and large landowners got out of the business of directly farming their domain altogether and rented it out to tenants if they could. Now that was brilliant for the free present, because you'd get nice low rents on land, since there weren't enough people around to rent, so there was little competition. Landowners did it anyway if they could, because renting insulated them from the vagaries of a difficult and stagnant market, so the trade of profit for security was acceptable, even though the rents they got weren't that great. And so, this very much encouraged the move from the world of serfdom, of unfree peasants working the Lord's land, to the world of self-sufficient farmers holding their land for rent, freehold or copyhold, and employing wage labourers. And so, on a side note, and I'm really not sure how I've got to the situation where this is a side note, serfdom has now pretty much disappeared by the time we get to 1550. There's a bit of it here and there, notably on the Duke of Norfolk's estate, as it happens, but in the scheme of things, It is yesterday's news. So, that's where we'd come from then. Now, in the early 16th century, with a rising population, things began to look very different. In principle, if you owned land, you were sitting very pretty. Very pretty indeed. You could, in principle, charge much higher rents, both because there were more potential tenants around, and also because your tenants themselves were raking it in, getting much more income from rising prices. 
Plus, if you could afford it, there were all those lovely juicy church lands coming onto the market. The sell-off of the excessive wealth of the church has been described as the greatest transfer of property in English history since the Norman Conquest. The nobility snaffled up their share of that in probably a slightly lower proportion than might have been expected. Bear in mind that the church had owned a gargantuan third of the land of England pre-Reformation, though far from all of that was transferred by any stretch of the imagination. But in Essex, to take that as an example, the nobility's share of the land rose by five percentage points, up from 12% to 17% of the whole. So in fact, it was the gentry that really made it big, their share of the land ownership in Essex going from 52% to 70%. Urban authorities were also players, often quick to buy up land where they could and then recycle them into hospitals and schools. This is one of the reasons for a wave of town incorporations after 1540, since it meant that towns could then own land in their own right, therefore buy that land. The transfer meant that much more land was now devoted to lay and household priorities, and it was a massive boon to yeomen and better-off husbandmen, to all of those who could afford either to buy their own farms or take on more land to rent, or indeed both. For a while, in fact, yeomen and husbandmen acquired a double benefit. Many held land on copyhold rents, which are very much part of the customary tradition and very difficult to change. Now, I know you are all thinking, did I really come to the History of England podcast to hear about copyhold leases? Just shoot me. But look, these things mattered to your small farmer much more than whether Mary Tudor had married a Spaniard or not. A copyhold lease was traditionally very often held for three lifetimes. A very different situation to Scotland, for example, where the traditional lease was just for a year. Sometimes copyhold leases were 99 years, but basically the word you're looking for is long. Critically, this meant that most tenants were pretty well protected, and it was hard for landowners to raise rents quickly. They could try to realise some gains when land transferred from generation to generation, because when that happened, the new generation often had to pay an entry fine, which were normally payable to take possession under copyhold agreements. But even these were quite inflexible and difficult to increase. So for a while, many husbandmen and yeomen profited both from rising income from selling their goods at a higher price and stationary rents, which kept their costs low. Banzai was the cry around the hillsides. For these farmers, from the substantial to smallholder, the economic circumstances and sale of church lands was transformative. And maybe it was transformative in a cultural sense too. In many places, these groups either bought or rented more land. The reason for doing this may not always have been just to make a load of money more so that they could buy that rig or ludo set they'd always wanted. The initial impetus may simply have been security. A way, finally, for the family to move beyond the crushing fear of bad harvests that could end in famine and death. Now they could have a bit more wriggle room, a bit of a buffer to ride out bad years. Also, land has many less tangible benefits. It conferred social status. It was the best possible way of providing for your children after you were gone. These are not particularly capitalist regions for acquiring land, but in practical terms, it meant that a large number of people were now freed from the previous cycle of living on what they could produce with just family labour, subsistence plus a small surplus. 
Now they could make themselves wealthy and insulated to some extent from the vagaries of the economy. In the appearance of capitalism, that must be a significant point, isn't it? I don't think we're going to cover it in this short series now, but as the 16th century progressed, the results could be seen in what W.G. Hoskins called the Great Rebuilding of England, as yeomen extended and beautified their farmhouses. I'm told that Anne Hathaway's cottage is one of those, so if you go and visit Stratford, which we will do on the forthcoming History of England tour in September next year, by the way... You can not only find out more about the life of the bloody bard, but also see the impact of the economic transformation of the 16th and 17th centuries, which is a lot more interesting as far as I am concerned than whether Yorick was or was not poor. So far then, it has been a reasonably present story. We have discussed the winners. For cottagers and wage labourers, the experience was very different indeed. More people meant more competition for work, and therefore the suppression of wages. Now, meanwhile, increased population led to higher prices for grain. One study established that if population rose by more than 0.5% a year, prices began to rise, since supply could not easily be increased to meet increased demand. This is a killer stat. If population rose by more than 0.5%, the economy was not flexible enough to adjust. Now, this is a really nasty combination for a wage labourer. Increasing prices, increasing availability of labour, this meant real wages effectively fell. And when I say fell, I mean a cliff-faced type stuff, not just doing a roly-poly. The 1540s and 1550s were particularly disastrous with the highest inflation rates. Employers eventually responded with higher wages to a degree, but nothing like what was required to meet price increases so that fall in real wages could be crushing. Real wages of building craftsmen in the towns of southern England, for example, fell by close to 50% by the 1550s. Think about that for a moment. 50%. As I have mentioned, the life of cottagers and labourers' families was anyway precarious before all of this, though it is possible to overdo that story. Many families were well above the subsistence level in 1500 and therefore were able at least to survive. In Hull, for example, it's been calculated that a building craftsman needed to work 164 days in a year to support a family, which was reasonably achievable. The equivalent figure for a labourer was 264 days, which is possible. These figures are, of course, about bare survival so that is setting the bar of happiness horrendously low. And even then, it's clear that for many, makeshift and mend would no longer hack it in the later 16th century. That 264-day target would have been tough in the best of times. It now might look very hard indeed. Now, unemployment began to appear, and not just unemployment, but underemployment. For the wage labourer, as I've mentioned, work was rarely about having a steady job with a monthly pay packet and a foreign holiday. It was about a series of jobs with a glut of them during harvest time. So underemployment was every bit as important as unemployment. Work might still be found, but just not enough of it and not well enough paid. So filling 264 days a year with work was now close to impossible. Now, historians have pointed out that it's too simple, like Sybil, to speak simply of two nations, the rich and the poor. 
Historians don't like simple things. In complexity is safety, in complexity is truth. Such a simple division into rich and poor suggests group of individuals or families that were born poor and stayed poor all their lives. But it was less commonly like that than you might think. The more common experience of poverty was often age-related. Life cycle poverty is the phrase that gets used, I think. Wage workers, whether male or female, might be relatively well off when they were young and managed to make ends meet when bringing up a family together as dinkies, but then fall into poverty in old age and need support then from their communities. But in the mid and later 16th century, this also began to change for many more people. As inflation, population growth, unemployment all increased, more and more families were finding poverty to be a permanent or semi-permanent condition, not age-related anymore. For many unable to find employment in their home parish, they just had to leave to try and find work. An example of an increasingly common experience might be found in the voice of the man hauled up before the Montgomery Shire magistrates for vagancy in 1568. He was asked where he lived and he reflected the pitiless reality of his life when he said that he dwells nowhere nor has no abiding but there as he may have work. Others led an entirely marginal existence, like the woman in Cheshire in 1574 who confessed that she's used the art of begging from her cradle. Infamously, when they left home, they faced a wall of hostility, misunderstanding and incomprehension. The separation of the poor into deserving and undeserving was not new in the 16th century. It was more a product of the 15th century, in fact. Deserving poor were the old and infirm, the casualties often of life cycle poverty or disability. The world was used to these people. They were to be supported, and in their poverty they were close to God, and their support brought the wealthy closer to God too. The undeserving poor were the able-bodied, and in the eyes of the medieval and early modern world view, they were rule-breakers and a canker that struck at the very roots of society. The premise was that if you had the faculty to work and were not doing so, you were clearly simply shirking and a slacker. It's not that people were in some way intrinsically less charitable back then, although they were probably more accepting of poverty as part of the world order. It is because the medieval world was built in relatively close societies, where most people lived and died within their parish or region, and were either looked after there or found employment there. That safety was exploded into a million tiny shards by the population growth of the 16th century, and while our sympathies are naturally with the losers, to understand it's necessary to feel sympathy also for everyone. Long-held basic assumptions about the way the world worked were being shattered in a way that was pretty terrifying for all. If, in desperation, you did indeed take to the road, your problems doubled. Vagrants were by definition undeserving, since if they were deserving, they'd have been supported in their parish. Penalties under the Yorkist and Tudor laws were hideously harsh by our standards, committed to the stocks or pillory, whipping for multiple offences, and then being sent back whence they came. Severe under Edward IV and Henry VII, under Henry VIII and his children it could only get worse. At the same time, of course, support for the poor was severely disrupted by the dissolution of the monasteries and chantries. There is much debate about this, of course, about how significant support from monasteries was by the 1530s, since it's probably much less than it once had been. A figure of about £9,000 to £10,000 a year seemingly is reasonably widely supported. 
which falls broadly into the worthy but dull level, that is, it would have clearly been insufficient on its own to support the poor, and there were many other sources of private giving which were not removed, but it's still hugely significant. And then there's debate about how far support was replaced elsewhere. It's clear that there were mechanisms in place, whether existing hospitals and almshouse being taken over or newly created, and it's also clear that parishes and towns retained their responsibility for support. But I will say there are some estimates that say poor relief took until 1600 to fully recover, and that I have yet to read anything anywhere suggesting that the amount of poor relief got any better before the Poor Law of 1598, despite a tranche of poor laws before that. And in the face of an increasing poverty problem, that means the situation got worse. The government was well aware there was a problem, and it tried to do something about it, and applied both carrot and stick medicine, both hard and soft. In 1531, laws allowed deserving poor to beg. In 1536, Cromwell introduced the first poor law. There were further laws in 1547 and 1552, and further efforts and laws would be made under Elizabeth. The number of acts in itself demonstrates the size of the problem. But it was not until the 1598 Poor Law Act that a genuinely effective system was put in place. Meanwhile, laws also tried to repair the economic situation – In 1552, for example, ordering the return to tillage of land converted to pasture since 1509. Badgers had to be licensed. You might wonder what badgers had to do with anything, but a badger was any trader who bought somewhere and sold somewhere else, such as corn dealers, for example. In finding out this fact, I also learned that there is a modern use of the word badger to mean someone who is overprepared, has all the kit, that sort of thing. The modern world is a difficult thing, since I understand that one of my favourite words, mather, to dither and moan, is now frankly unusable. Curse you, modern world. I cursed you and cast you out. Anyway, badgers, specifically in this case corn dealers, had to be licensed by local magistrates, on the basis that they could then stop them from raising prices, which surely they must be doing, because, you know, the prices keep going up. There must be just some very disreputable badgers out there making unreasonable profits, and if we can just stop them doing it, everything will be okay and go back to normal. There is, of course, no evidence that any of these did any significant good. Just to make matters worse, in 1551 the cloth trade collapsed, and legislation tried to protect livelihoods by stopping the industry starting up in new places, and therefore putting people already engaged in the industry out of work. It's another interesting example that action tended to try to reinforce the old verities, keep things as they were, rather than take advantage of the new realities. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The mention of the cloth trade might seem to be a golden opportunity to talk about towns, and I will seize that opportunity, though it is not such an obvious leap as you might think, because in fact a lot of industry, as we will shortly hear, took place in the countryside cottage. However, towns. The general profile of the country's population remains the same as it has for a while. The vast majority live in the countryside, 10% or less in the towns. And there is, as as yet, little sign of any great growth in the number of people living in towns. In fact, 
the size of smaller towns might actually have been falling in the 16th century, which we'll come back to. The exception to that, of course, is the beast, the big smoke, London, like a great black hole pulling migrants in from all over England and from abroad, where population went from around 55,000 in 1500 to 80,000 by 1550 and would reach 200,000 by 1600. Who'd elbow? Towns were very much part of the countryside around them. They were integrated into it so that most towns would contain most trades so that they could service the area around them properly. Towns were part of the countryside they served, essentially. Often these towns also articulated the specialisations of the district of which they were part. So, lovely Richmond on the border between the Yorkshire Dales and the Vale of York provided the interchange between the wool and dairy of the Dales with the grain of the Vale. The vast majority of business actually took place in the village or parish, in small-scale deals which often relied on credit. And if more was required, then the local market town would normally do the job. The people of Market Kibworth in Leicestershire, for example, were given the option of travelling into town at least once a week, where they could find a market most days. However, if you were feeling particularly picky, and the local market town couldn't help you out, in which case you might need to square the shoulders and travel further abroad to one of the provincial capitals like Newcastle, or York, Bristol, Norwich. To give you a point of reference, Norwich was the largest of these regional capitals with a population of around 12,000. When you arrived there and wandered through the streets, trades might be grouped into five broad types. Shops and merchants, manufacturers of stuff like leather goods, for example, clothing, food and drink retailing, so including the boozer, of course, building, and then the professional lot, apothecaries, lawyers, clergymen. But you would also find large numbers of semi-skimmed or unskilled labourers who would be carrying out jobs that would vary from day to day. The majority of the things you might be looking for to buy would have been produced by the handicraft system. The handicraft system is a label we have applied to the pre-modern situation in Europe where the master concerned produced the item themselves all the way through from the materials to the finished item. And given the size of the market and the level of demand, there just wasn't much incentive to try and increase the sophistication of the production process through any division of labour or mechanisation. I say the master concerned would have done the work, what I mean is manage it really, because he would probably have an apprentice or even apprentices who had achieved the status of journeyman, but did not have the capital to set up on their own as a master. Becoming an apprentice, normally for seven years, was a common start in life, particularly for young men, second only to domestic service. There is, however, one great exception to this rule, that is, the rule of the handicraft, which is far and away the largest and most important industry, that of clothing. Here there were greater opportunities to get involved in larger-scale manufacturing. If you happen to be a master in the industry, you might follow two routes – both of which involved a merchant with greater access to capital to service the development. You might go for the domestic system, and the, the domestic system kept the master pretty much in control of production as normal, but then you'd hook up with the merchant who would sell and distribute your glowing glorious products to markets further away than your own region. Or secondly, you might get involved in the putting out system, where a merchant capitalist financed the whole process 
putting out stages of the manufacturing process to specialists. In that process, there will be a combination of centralised and local working, so parts of the process like cleaning and dyeing or fulling of the cloth would be done in the clothier's workshop. But the spinning and the weaving, that might be put out. That work, the spinning and the weaving, would then be done by individuals in their own homes and paid for by piecework. It's essentially wage work. The critical news, though, is that by the 1520s, this work was not simply the preserve of towns. It had expanded into the countryside. For the merchants organising the work, households in the countryside would often do the work for very much less than those in the towns, so that encouraged the growth of rural production. For many rural households in the countryside, making ends meet involved being part of manufacturing as well as being part of food production. So, in Kent, for example, 1,300 households in the Weald appear to have been involved in weaving, and that could have been as much as 16% of the total population. Spinning was often dominated by children and women. The same analysis in Kent had suggested that 35% of children and women were involved in spinning. I am dimly aware that there is a modern joke relating to some hideous exercise routine which could be made here, but I'm going to decline the temptation to make such a gag as a principled stand against it. Just so you know. I would, however, like to pull out a few points about rural manufacturing, if I may. Firstly, by the 1550s, it is too simple to think of purely rural versus urban or farming versus trade. Many families, at least 15% of households, would be carrying out a variety of economic activities. That meant that many were less exposed to harvest failure, which is a good thing because they had other income to fall back on. But it also meant they were more susceptible to a wider and more distant series of events. So the impact of war in Europe, which created an embargo on trade with the Netherlands, for example, could affect you, or the collapse in demand for English broadcloth, or the flap of a butterfly's wings in China, could reach all the way back to the highlands of Cumbria. Secondly, it's worth adding that areas like the highlands of Cumbria or the Weald of Kent were much more likely to be so protected or affected, because areas characterised by wood and pasture agriculture rather than open field and arable were much more likely to be part of rural industry, and that's the type of area that Cumbria and Kent were. That is a comment to which I shall return before the end of the episode. Thirdly, is the debate about this so-called proto-industrialisation, as it has been called. The idea is that these rural industries and the putting-out system encouraged the conditions for the later industrialisation of the Industrial Revolution largely because it began to consolidate capital for industrial use, an essential part of the Industrial Revolution, and also that the putting-out system began to give experience for another key component of the Industrial Revolution, the division of labour, such as, you make the tea, I'll read the newspaper. Well, actually, not quite like that. Reducing costs and increasing quality and productivity by focusing on specific tasks in the process. And finally, in this rather random list of things, the impact on the population of smaller towns could be quite dramatic. By and large, the emphasis is now on continuity again, the complexion of towns' trade changing rather than having a disastrous decline. But nonetheless, many towns shrank in the 16th century quite considerably. So Coventry in the Midlands went from 10,000 to 6,600 by 1520, for example. 
In this profile of decline, London was an exception, as London tends to be exceptional in English life and politics to this day, of course. The 16th century was one of constant growth for London. From 55,000 people in 1500 to 200,000 in 1600, it was the only true big city on a European scale. It completely dominated English overseas trade based on its proximity to the Netherlands, with monopolistic control of the Netherlands trade enjoyed by the Merchant Adventurers Company. It handled 70% of England's cloth exports in the 1480s and 80% by the 1530s. Its population growth was not driven by its own birth rate, but by national migration. People flocked to London, because after all, the streets were paved with gold. To give you an example of the scale of that, of a thousand new freemen admitted to the city in the years 1551 to 1553, only one-fifth of them had actually been born in London. These people came from all over, most from the southeast and East Anglia, almost as many from the Midlands and Northern counties, smaller numbers from the southwest Wales and Ireland. Given that London is something of an exception, one rubric has been of a general urban crisis during the 16th century, although that story has been moderated more recently. Because first of all, it's important to remember the basic fact that trade outside of the parish and immediate locality of people was a relatively small part of the early modern economy. It's almost impossible to even dream of calculating what that might be, but Keith Wrightson and Mark Overton gave it a shout, with the suitably qualified statement that it would seem unlikely that the total of market-oriented producers and consumers constituted much more than one-third of the English population. So there you go, make of that of what you will. Two-thirds of people probably just focused on their own family's needs. With that proviso, despite the shifts in some parts of cloth manufacture to rural suppliers, towns may have lost some of their numbers, but they lost very little of their essential role integrated into the English economy. Since I have mentioned that some of the cities of England played a role as provincial capitals, it would seem churlish or even careless not to talk a bit about the regions and provinces of which they were part. It also allows me to talk about another underpinning foundational concept of how England worked, which I can now talk about. So, I harp on, I admit, I harp on interminably about how unusually centralised England has been, administratively speaking, since the later Anglo-Saxon kings, and despite the best that the Norman kings could do to mess things up with their poxy feudalism. But this should not blind you to the strength of local and regional experience. The vast majority of people spend their lives within one parish or region, and it is that region and its peculiarities, its landscape, markets, landholding, customs, that will affect the way you live. A very large percentage of the people of early modern England operated principally within five to ten miles of where they were born. In Kent, for example, about half the villagers found marriage partners within their own parish. 70% were married to people within five miles distance, 84% within 10 miles and 93% within 15 miles. Everything was very local. And in that regard, there is a map of surpassing loveliness, intellectually speaking, produced in a book edited by a chap called Charles Pythian Adams. 
I mean, it's not beautiful to the eye, but in it are mapped 14 cultural provinces of pre-modern England. What the map shows is that the regions of England are linked by topography, coast, hills, rivers, landscape, and by market access into regions. We know of this instinctively even now, I think, in the modern world, however much weaker those connections are now. We know that the people of East Anglia and Cambridgeshire are connected in some way, that the southwest is distinctive, that the Midlands, Yorkshire, of course, where well, I could go on. When people of the time spoke of their country, they might mean England, but they were more likely talking of the region in which they were born and were part. I thought I would use Jane Austen for an example here, since I thought she had written in Pride and Prejudice that there was no finer country in England than Derbyshire, but it seems that she wrote county instead of country. So I took me to one James Pilkington, who also wrote of Derbyshire in 1789. But diversified beauty is the prevailing characteristic of the narrow dales of the low peaks, and perhaps there is no country that can boast of finer scenes of the latter kind than Derbyshire. You might wonder at the obsession with Derbyshire, by the way, but I have just been walking there and I'd forgotten just what a stunner of a place it is. Anyway, so that would be their country, their area, their hood, their patch. It would deliver government and law, but it would also include their personal connections and dealings and businesses, which might extend around a much more nebulous cultural province than an administrative shire even. I might very briefly connect this then, with what is universally acknowledged to be the most exciting single topic in English history, which is the topography of the English landscape and its impact on lives and communities, or at least universally acknowledged within the vicinity of the shed. Those members who have struggled through the life and landscape in Anglo-Saxon England series will know what I'm talking about when I refer to the different types of lowland England, planned and ancient. What follows is therefore the excruciatingly summarised super-summary. You might divide England, gentle listener, or indeed Britain, into some very broad groups. Highland, planned lowland, ancient lowland. You might do this while covering yourself in grovelling apology for the vast swathe of generalisations in such a phrase, but then ignore that and just go for it with enthusiasm. Within the lowland regions of England, broadly to the East Midlands and South, Two quite different traditions are followed. I will dig out a copy of Oliver Rackham's map and put it on the website, by the way, so you can see what and where I mean. In a process that started in late Anglo-Saxon England, the good people of England began to follow different agricultural practices according to the strengths and characteristics of their land. In a wide swathe of area, from the mid-south coast up through the Midlands, and into Norfolk and through Lincolnshire and the northeast coast, the countryside lent itself to arable farming. Communities therefore organised themselves into open field systems, those same open field systems whose enclosure we keep talking about now. I say communities organise themselves, and that of course belongs to the Pollyanna view of the process and needs heavy qualification. In many cases, the process was top-down, either encouraged or even forced on the inhabitants by landowners looking to rationalise their manners, but often it was indeed a bottom-up process, a community organising itself as best it could. So where this happened, profound changes came with it. Big open fields 
meant that other resources must be shared more. I'm not suggesting that shared rights over land are purely a result of open field systems. They are not. They are often very ancient indeed. But they play a particularly critical part in it. So if you have a strip or strips of arable, you need access to meadow for hay and pasture for plough teams and other livestock which you may share with the rest of the community. You need access to woodland and to water. This means not only do you need rights to use such resources, you also need rights to travel to and access those resources. Also, many things are going to have to be planned in common. How much access does each person have? Wrongdoers need to be restrained and disciplined. The amount of resources need to be planned in common. Which fields are to be fallow this year? Should a new crop rotation system be planned? What crops shall we plant? And so on. And also... It made sense to live together in closely knit villages, where everyone was together and could plan and meet, where plough teams could be kept and shared and that sort of thing. And so, from widespread individual farms, people began to live together in the nuclear village, to which we have now become so used, and which seems to be so normal now. And inherent in that system was also the need for manorial courts to manage all this stuff and rule on disputes, for communities to share resources and act communally. However, other areas were less suitable for arable farming, generally areas of upland or lowland like Fen. So the Wealds of Kent and Sussex, the lowlands of Essex and Suffolk and Breckland in Norfolk, the Chiltern Hills, the uplands of western England towards the Welsh borders. So in these places, land was often never enclosed at all and the economy might always have been focused on pastures or individual farms with integrated resources. The land around these individual farms would not have been planned in the way that I've just described for open field systems, not relayed out in medieval days, but they retained their ancient configuration and field structure. There would be shared rights in common, but they were probably much less extensive. These areas might be referred to as ancient countryside because that reworking had not taken place. Or sometimes it'll be called wood pasture to reflect the agricultural bias in those areas towards livestock and woodland farming. Well, why am I telling you this and why is it so exciting? I am telling you this because, first of all, if you are interested in the daily experience of women and men in their landscape, had a huge impact out of all proportion to its impact these days, or in England at least, where we can commute 50 miles to a city to work. This means I can finally link back to that statement that rural industry tended to take part more extensively in wood pasture regions. This is because it is a method of farming that is less time-intensive. So you have some downtime, some time to make socks while looking after your flocks, as it were. So the landscape had a direct impact on the rhythm of people's lives. Secondly, because historians have at various times and in various places not only performed the parrot sketch, but also tried to see an influence on cultural attitudes that derive from their background and landscape. There is a beautiful, if much disputed, piece of work by a historian called David Underdown on what he described as the chalk and cheese areas of the southwest and their reaction, therefore, to the civil wars. He tried to build a model of a lowland village where a sense of community and traditional relationships and religion prevailed against a wood pasture area more dominated by individualism and Protestantism. I suppose this particular study has had most of its bunk removed, but it's still out there, and however you view it, 
Landscape makes a difference. And finally, it's the most exciting thing in the world because the lives of our ancestors remain etched on the landscape. For this, you need Oliver Rackham's History of the Countryside or Richard Muir's Reading the Landscape. Although I should note, by the way, that the recognition of this basic division in lowland England has long been recognised. It's not a recent realisation. Antiquarians of the 16th century wrote about it, for example. But just on a basic level, if you travel through, say, the smallest county, Rutland, Maltham, in Parvo, and then travel through the Chiltern Hills, northwest of London, you will see that basic difference between planned and unplanned countryside that I'm talking about. So Rutland on the one hand, Rutland is champion land. Champion not from the sense of a George Formby movie or a wonder horse, but from the French Campagne, open countryside. There you will find the traditional nucleated English village in gorgeous deep yellow ironstone. You will find relatively few footpaths. You will find largely straightish roads that lead logically from A to B, relatively thin hedgerows of one or two plants in width. If you then go and drive through the Chiltern Hills, yes, you will come to some villages, since, of course, the world has been built on a bit since industrialisation. But you will also see a world of isolated farmhouses. There are footpaths all over the place. The road system is much more higgledy-piggledy. The hedgerows tend to be much wider and organic, having built up over time. Woodland tends to be more frequent and exists in smaller clumps. It is essentially less planned. I do not know quite why I find this as exciting as I do, but I believe, on careful analysis with the help of Vinter Breakspeare's ordinary, now most amusingly rebranded gravity to access the less open-toed sandal market, that it is because in the shape of the landscape and our understanding of it, there is a direct connection between me sitting here and my ancestors. It is a thin thread. I doubt they would be impressed with me. Nonetheless, it is a living thread and it is made of the finest unbreakable steel. Anyway, the long and short, since you can't see these maps, probably all I can ask you to take away from this is to think of women, men and their families standing in their landscape and society, not as a single blob. You can sadly think of me as a single blob if you like, but that's a different story. Well, I am exhausted, so next time then, I think we should follow this descent downwards into the bowels of English life in search of the fundamental particle, the basis of all life. We might find it in that increasingly important component of English life, the parish. That is anyway where we will look next time, which will be in two weeks. Thank you for listening, everyone. It was an eclectic and slightly incoherent sort of episode, wasn't it? But nonetheless informative for all that, I hope. Anyway, thank you again. Good luck and have a great fortnight. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.